And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, good morning. Um, some of you have uh, these little envelopes, and inside you have a couple of cards, um, apparently, and I'm to remember that you've got that. Uh, who's preaching is one of the questions, and the name is Jesus. All right? Oh, no, me, I suppose, but and there you go. Work out who I am, and then other things to follow through. I hope 
children and younger folk, that you'll get something of what we're trying, Jesus is trying to say to us today. It's not about me, it's about Jesus, isn't it? Also, an apology. I, I, I did an illustration with lint chocolate this morning to the children. Uh, and I was the lord of the lint chocolate, and they all had to suck one and not eat it. Uh, and if that's creating a mess now because of my lordship, then uh, uh, my apologies. But my lordship might be messy, but the lordship of Jesus is not. And that's the reason why we're going to consider Mark chapter 12 and listen to him. The situation that Jesus is facing is one of growing opposition. We already know from Mark chapter 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic, that he said, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven you. And from that moment on, there has been a murder plot being hatched. The first two encounters of this section um, are hostile attacks, and Jesus handles them with truth and with composure. The third encounter, which we will look at much more fully this morning, is a genuine question, but it also gets the truth treatment answer. And all three answers shape what it means to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus as Lord, which is now on many of our fridges, but it's from Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. But I suppose we need to be really sure about Jesus if we are going to love and obey him with our precious lives. Mark tells us, or at least actually God tells us through Mark, that we are to listen to Jesus. Well, we need to be very sure about him if we're going to listen to him. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. Jesus is the humble King ridiculously riding on a donkey on the way to the cross into Jerusalem. Jesus is the cornerstone who has been rejected as rubbish by religion, but he's the cornerstone upon whom we are being built to live with God forever. So we need to be really sure about Jesus, don't we? If we're going to give him the entirety of our precious lives, and our lives are precious to us. You're not just going to trust anybody with your life, are you? All these three answers are short and yet full of content. Jesus is really saying three very important things that we would need to discuss at great length. And I don't have the time to do all of that. So the first two we will consider briefly, and there will be lots of gaps for you to talk about thereafter. But the main thrust, I hope, will be clear. And then the final section will unpack in some detail, at least. So the first two are hostile attacks. Here they are. They're coming after Jesus. And the first issue is an issue of unfair taxation. Nothing changes, does it, really? Verses 13 to 17. This was a political and a social matter, and it was causing deep resentment in Jewish culture. So the delegation that comes has an agenda, as we're told, to trap him 
in his talk. And in other words, this question is designed to make Jesus unpopular, and he knows it. The Pharisees and the Herodians have already rejected Jesus and are trying to prove the rightness of their rejection. That's the reason for the question. There are questions like that, aren't they? There are hostile questions. Jesus is already rejected, and the rejection is being confirmed by the question. And the issue is put with very clever flattery. Uh, Teacher, verse 14, we know you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God, which they didn't believe. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? We could think of other issues in our own time, uh, which we find it difficult to answer as Christians. It put, they put this on the back foot. Well, here is what is being designed here. The tax had produced deep resentment because it was imposed on the Jewish occupied people and the Romans didn't have to pay it. Well, there you go. And many Jews refused to pay it on a moral principle. They believed that Yahweh was king Caesar was not. They couldn't pay it for a theological reason, never mind the moral reason. But you can see the cleverness of this, can't you? Culture is clever, isn't it? If Jesus says to pay the tax, that will displease the people and alienate them from from Jesus. If Jesus says not to pay the tax, then this will displease the Roman authorities and they will see him as an enemy of the state and he'll be in big trouble. But thankfully, this is why it's so good to follow Jesus, isn't it? Do you see? He sees the hypocrisy in their hearts. Verse 15, I think. Right. Yep. Let me just find it so we know it. But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? You see, you can't kid Jesus. That's good news for us. He sees the hostile nature of the question. And he states it publicly so everybody hears, that everybody knows that this is a test. It's not a sincere question. So he asks for a coin, a small denaria. And uh, he says, and whose image is on this? Well, the image is Caesar. And that, of course, was so resentful to the Jewish occupied nation. Whose image is on this? And on the basis of that, he gives such a marvelous reply. Verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. If he is is God's appointed political governor, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, unless Caesar is commanding you to do something that is contrary to what God says. But render to God the things that are God's. I remind you that hypocrisy is asking the question. 
And therefore, Jesus knows that Israel's essential problem is not about unfair Roman taxation. It is the duty to give God full honor and worship in life. It means repenting from their sin and turning in wholehearted obedience in love to God. And that is precisely what is not happening in Jewish culture, whatever the issue about taxation might rise, raise. Loyalty to God, as we will see, comes first and shapes all other priorities. So we might be right about unfair taxation, but we might actually be wrong about God. That's the first hostile question. Unfair taxation. It's not the big issue. The big issue is give to God what is his due. Second hostile question as we move on. The resurrection is ridiculous. Verses 18 to 27. The Sadducees are the people who come and they are the people who didn't actually believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees were the social elite and dominated by the ruling council, dominated the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And as conservatives, they only believed that the first five books of Moses, Genesis uh, right through to Deuteronomy, were God's word to Israel. The rest of the Old Testament was not God's word to Israel. And they were convinced, having read these five books very thoroughly, that the resurrection was not taught there, and therefore it was a false teaching. And so in raising the issue now, they want to show how ridiculous Jesus is in believing in the resurrection, that he was a false teacher not to be followed. The grave is the end, and there is nothing beyond it. That was their position. And they quote a, a law from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, where Moses had commanded that in that Old Testament period, if a man's brother died and left a, a wife and they had no children, then the brother's responsibility was to actually have a child with the widow. It's a strange kind of thought for us, far removed from it in our own culture, but you get the drift because what they do is they tell a story in verses 20 to 23 of a woman who had seven brothers and didn't have any offspring with any of them. And then they say, in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, by the way, whose wife will she be? <laughs> gotcha. But you can't outthink Jesus. He gives a brilliant answer to this. And we should be assured as we look at the answer for a few moments that living under the rule of King Jesus and being shepherded by him is okay. Jesus is never lost. Jesus is never confused. And so he answers. He tells them that they are wrong in verse 24 because, two the reasons, you neither know the scriptures, <laughs> even the ones they said they believed in, or the power of God. 
The resurrection is not a ridiculous teaching because, firstly, of the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, says Jesus in verse 25, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The power of God raises the dead, and the new life that he raises the dead to is, in, is significantly different to the one we have down here. In other words, all the raised to life people still have bodies, but they are immortal bodies. All raised to life people are joyfully single, hear me, joyfully single and eternally married to the as the bride to the bridegroom. Joyfully single, eternally married as the bride to the bridegroom. See how different it is? We are like angels. We, are, we, we don't express ourselves sexually any longer in the new creation. We are joyfully different in our relationships with one another. That's what's coming. That's the direction of travel. My mother is in heaven today. She is my eternal sister. She is no longer my mother. My sons, I have four of them, uh, are my sons at this present moment in time because I'm in this earth, but they are my eternal brothers. They belong to the Lord Jesus, as I do. That's the reality. But not only is the power of God raises the dead and new life is different. The truth of God teaches the, the, resurrection, the resurrection in the whole Bible. On their own ground, Jesus shows them that the resurrection, God is the God of the living, not the dead. He quotes Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. As for the dead, being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. God is the God who is the I am who I am, the all-sufficient, everlasting God. God is not temporary. And God's covenant love relationship is eternal and does not end with death. Death is not the end as far as God is concerned. It does not end our relationship with him. And it does not end our relationship with each other if we are followers of Jesus. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, speaking of them as if they are in the present. But these men have died. And the bush itself is just a glorious illustration of that. It's the burning bush, but not the burning bush. Do you get the point? Yes, it is burning, or it appears to be burning, doesn't it? Because God has come and invaded the bush. But the glorious thing about that is, is that it's not being burnt, because God does not destroy. God saves. God changes. God transforms. We know that the resurrection will become much more clearly than this passage of Scripture. The rest of the Bible is incredibly important about that. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate demonstration that the resurrection is not ridiculous. 
And how hopeful it is for so many of us in this room. It is wise and a sure thing to follow Jesus all the way through this world with all its demands and struggles and difficulties, through death itself, because death will come unless Jesus returns, to the new creation when the relationship doesn't end, it gets enhanced. We see God face to face and we are with one another, joyfully single, but eternally married. You get the drift. Well, at least I hope you do. These two hostile questions, therefore, briefly considered, if you think they've been briefly considered. Thirdly, the greatest commandment, verses 28 to 34. This is the final question asked of Jesus in the temple courts before his death on the cross. He ends all questions now. Jesus is Lord. He has authority. And when he says there's going to be no more questions, there's going to be no more questions, and there are no more questions. But the last question is a sincere question. I think it's a vital question. And he's asked by a scribe who's going past and hearing the debate that he's having with all these people. And they ask him, he asks him, what is the greatest, what is the most important commandment? Verse 28. And Jesus gives a reply to that. And it's a right reply. We need to hear it. It is a right reply. Because the, te because the scribe says so in verse 32. You are right, teacher. Jesus can be trusted. I say it to you again in what he teaches us and therefore we can obey him in love as we follow him. I say again to you, it is wise and safe to follow Jesus in our lives whether we are seven or we are 67 as I am. But what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, here the two great commands. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Hear, O Israel, is a quotation from Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verses 4 to 5, the Shema, where God's people confessed in response uh, to God who loved them and had saved them in response to the God who loved and saved them that they themselves would love him back in obedience. And faithful Jews still say it to this day in morning and evening. Hear, O Israel. Hear what is being said. Now let's be clear before we go here. Because some of this will feel maybe a little bit kind of, oh, that was a bit sore. But so, I hope by the end of it, and that's my prayer at least, you will see the beauty of it all. In other words, if you end this sermon thinking these two commands are your enemy, then I may have failed in what I'm saying. But if you see them as your friends, then Jesus has succeeded in this sermon. God loves us, my friends. He has given us life. We're made in his image. 
He wants the best for us. And so God commands us throughout the Bible that we should love Him more than we love ourselves, and we should obey all that He says to us, and that is the best version of ourselves it is possible to have. That is the best version of yourself. That is the best version of myself. Well, immediately, I think our brokenness is exposed by this. Jesus teaches us, as I've said, that this is God's good will for all his created people, without exception. This is the best way to live life. Love God perfectly with everything you have. Love others in the light of that. But it doesn't sound good news, does it? And the problem is that we're broken people. We don't function in the way that we were created to function. We were created to function, to love God and to love each other. But we don't, we don't function like that, do we? And the repeated word in the first command is the issue, isn't it? All. I mean, if he'd said some of my heart, some of my mind, some of my soul, some of my soul, well, okay, we've got a deal, Jesus. But this Lord Jesus goes and says, all. None of us have done it. I asked the children and the adults as we gathered before it, and I didn't put my hand up either. Uh, how many of us have done this? The best version of ourselves is to love God with all our minds, all our hearts, all our soul, and all our strengths, and we haven't done it. And the reason we know we haven't done it is the second command, which he wasn't asked to give, by the way. Jesus adds it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I was sharing this with my dad. My dad is 91, he has dementia, but he's very clear on some things. He's very clear on the Bible, interestingly. <laughs> and here we were around the, around the bed, uh, and uh, I, was, he, I was saying, I'm preaching on this on Sunday, Dad, you might like to pray for me. And he said, what are you pre preaching on? And I said this, and he said, oh, that's just impossible, isn't it, Morris? Why? We can't love our neighbor as ourselves because we're so self-centered, which means that we're not loving God perfectly. You see the connections? Bad news. So I used an illustration with the children earlier on before. I, ha I brought my jacket. It's, it's lying here. It's draped. It's a Timberland black jacket. If you can't see it, it's nothing to look at really. But, you know, here's my jacket. It, it kind of it illustrates my life in all of this. It doesn't move, does it? There it is. Suppose it's designed to, be, to, to, to live out there and uh, keep me nice and warm when it's cold. <laughs> but here it is, lying there. It's not moving. That's us. We're not moving towards this, these two commandments. We can't do it. And here's the point. We won't do it. Because we love ourselves too much. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 10 to confirm this. 
uh, he was asked the same question by a lawyer, and Jesus gave the same reply that how did he, lawyer asked, how could I have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer wasn't too happy about that. And he said to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Now think about it. It's all right saying we should love each other and share with each other and be kind to each other. And I think we agree with that. And I think we're trying to, trying to encourage each other in doing that. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting we're not. But it all depends who your neighbor is, doesn't it? There are some people who I wouldn't want to be next to me. And your neighbor isn't just somebody, somebody who lives next door at number eight, whatever. It's, it's anybody that I come across in their neediness. Wow. That's a biggie, isn't it? So Jesus tells the story of a good Samaritan. Uh, a man is beaten up on the road. He's traumatized and badly injured. And two men arrive on the scene, a priest and a Levite. And they refuse to get involved. What's going on in their hearts? Well, their hearts are full of self-love, uh, even though they are going to the temple apparently to worship God. But they're not going to worship God because they're leaving their neighbor in all his need. Their affections or their soul or their strength is rooted in themselves. And they were for religious ritual and temple events. Not messed up people on the road. And so in their minds, they had no thought about God who has mercy on the needy. No thought about God. No thought from God about the needy and God's mercy towards them. And they leave their neighbor as they are. They were not loving God at all. That's the thrust of the story. Though apparently, they're on their way to the temple. They're on their way to church. They're on their way to sing praises to God. They're on their way to sing some of their favorite hymns and say some prayers. The Samaritan then appears. He was from a despised culture. <laughs> you don't know the hostility between uh, the, the Samaritans and the Jews, but it was deeply hostile. And he sees this needy Jew on the road. And we know that he loves God because of what he does to the neighbor. Now, it is possible to want to help my neighbor simply for my own glory and for my own sake. I know, it's, I, know that's, I know that can be true. But in this case, in the story, it's not the case. His heart is moved with compassion. The text tells us that. He's like God in that. In his mind, he's obviously thinking like God, the God of mercy, the God who reaches out to the needy. And his soul and his strength is one of love for God and obedience to the will of God. And the actions prove it. Prove that he's following God. He's kind, he's caring, he's generous, and he's sacrificial. 
Indeed, he even when he gets the guy safely, having tended to his wounds, to, uh, to a place where he, can, where he can be cared for and be in comfort, he says, but I'll be coming back. This is right, and we know it. And it is this point I want to bring into the teaching as we're coming to a conclusion. Christ's beauty. I just need to see more and more of the beauty of Jesus. The best version of humanity is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting in John chapter 15, you don't need to turn to it, but I will read these verses to you, and you'll see the link. Uh, Jesus says this, when I find it. As the Father has loved me, he says to the disciples, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's the beauty of Jesus. He's the Good Samaritan. He lives a beautiful life in this fallen world full of enemies. We're even seeing this in Mark. He reaches out to people in compassion, and he got condemned for it. He never committed murder, adultery. He never lied or coveted. And his neighbors were truly loved because he loved God with all his mind and heart and soul and strength and soul. So let's be clear, my friends. The best version of yourself as a human being is Jesus. And if it is the case, following him renders that into your life and into my life. And that is beautiful. But more than that, not only did the king live this, this beautiful life of loving God and perfectly loving others, he went to the cross in the beauty of his sacrificial death. He rode that ridiculous donkey even though he loved God perfectly, even though he'd loved his enemies, uh, his neighbors, perfectly. Jesus died for our sin of loving ourselves sinfully and not loving God at all. God loved, he loved God so much that he obeyed God by dying for us on the cross. No wonder the scribe says, to love God like this and love our neighbors like this is more than burnt offerings and sacrifice. That is a startling comment to come from a Jew. No amount of religion will bring this to us. And so the king rides a donkey all the way to the cross and rises again from the dead. Is he beautiful like Beth today? So that's good news for us. Jesus, who joyfully lived these two commands, who first loved us by dying on a cross, now calls and say, now come behind me. Follow me. Love God and your neighbor by denying yourself. And you'll live the same beautiful life, die the same beautiful death, and enter the same beautiful presence of the living God. My jacket lies here. It still hasn't moved. 
Useless. I told you it was useless, didn't I? But what changes when I do this? This is the illustration. It's not perfect, you understand. It's only a jacket, but there it is. It's going to the door. Shall I go to the door now? <laughs> yeah, don't answer the question. Come on. Give a man a break. See the difference? If you want to be... Just think if somebody could climb into your life who was a brilliant singer, brilliant musician, what would they bring to you? Brilliant music. When Jesus comes to live inside you, having forgiven you of all your sin, the wonderful thing is that what he brings into all of your life and my life is that we love God and begin to learn how to do it with all we have. We have to learn it. It takes time and it won't be perfect on this earth. And then we begin to learn to live neighbors who may be not worthy of our love. All because Jesus has moved into our lives. As somebody has said, there is nothing that God demands of me that the Christ in me cannot do. And now these two friends, commands are our friends. Yes, they are. We're in the Lord Jesus. We're actively following him. We're discovering that his lordship is a lovely thing, not a, an uneasy thing. So the illustration with the lint chocolate went like this. I'm the lord of the lint chocolate, okay? Yeah, I know, it's only a joke. Uh, but let's pretend I am. And the way I eat a lint chocolate, for your information, is I put it all in my mouth, having unwrapped it, and I suck it. And I suck it. That's why we had three-year-olds trying to suck it. Okay, well done, the three-year-olds. It might be messy, but in my active following of this command that I impose upon myself, you, I hit the sweetness, which is at the center. And when we follow Jesus in these two commands, you know what happens? Eventually, somewhere along the line, the sweetness and happiness of Jesus hits our lives. I was a broken man in 2018. Um, one of the irrationalities in my life was that agoraphobia, which is the fear of wide open spaces. I could walk in a wood, but I couldn't manage it into a wide open space. You've never experienced it? That's fine. I understand. During my brokenness time, I was still trying to follow the Lord Jesus by His grace, read the Bible, pray, sing, go to church. One day I went on a lovely walk in a wood. You wouldn't be surprised to know. And I got to the edge of the wood. It was a beautiful day. It was a fantastic day. The scenery is brilliant. You know, creation is God's work. And, you know, there I stood at the edge of this wood and I could go no further. And a group of walkers went past me, you know, with their packs on. And they were laughing and having a really lovely... And down the track they went, you know. Humanity's going down the track and you're standing there, Maurice Kinnaird, on the edge of this. What a, what a wimp. I 
I gave some praise to God. It wasn't, it wasn't brilliant. But I knew God was worthy of praise. And I turned and I came back into the wood. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit through Zephaniah 3.17 said this to me. Didn't, it wasn't a sp spoken voice. Morris, we love you. We are singing over you. You're ours. Now, I could have got it down the track, couldn't I? But isn't it interesting that as I turn back in apparent defeat, apparent defeat, that's what the culture would tell me, the triune God says, nah. Because eventually in the commands, you hit the sweetness. Didn't solve my depression for 18 months. Two years later, I won't tell you the whole story with this one. It was also in another garden. My sister-in-law's garden. I, 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 usual day, I'm telling you the story now, aren't I? And, but I'm not the hero of these stories, am I? You see. And there... I was bubbling with happiness, suddenly. And it was happiness in the Lord. It wasn't happiness in the garden. And I knew it was the happiness in the Lord. And the thing is, I wanted to laugh, and I wanted to sing, and I was in public, and, you know, and, I, and I'm a weirdo as much as it is. And, I mean, how, how's that going to look? But eventually I drone quietly. Then sings my soul, my Savior God. And then the same little voice said to me, Morris, that's the happiness for all the darkness. The commands are our friends because in the commands you discover all the promises are true. This is our direction of travel. I know, I know that we are not always joyful and we're not always happy. And there are difficulties in the lives. I've already referred to that. But he did say to his disciples, if they loved him and remained in his love, they would know his joy and their joy would be full. We must study and see the beauty of Christ, my friends. We must take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him. We are wise and safe to do so. Let us pray. Pray with me, my friends. Please pray with me. If you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, then realize that you've just hit the central beauty of all that he offers you. A forgiven life. A life in which he indwells. indwells and a life that brings you to perfection in loving God and obeying him forever and loving each other perfectly. And if you today see those commands as friends because you know Jesus as Lord, then pray with me. Oh, that my soul could love him and praise him more. His beauties trace, his majesty adore. Live near his heart and rest in his love each day. Hear his dear voice and all his will obey. Lord Jesus, that's our prayer to you and the basis of your truth. We say to you, we love listening to you and your commands to
to love and obey are our friends, not our enemies. They're not the moral pressure that we can do without. They are the moral pleasure that bring us to yourself and yourself to us and the sweetness and happiness of knowing you and one day being joyfully single and eternally married. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.